Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the privilege to look at your word. And we pray now that you would guide us into your truth, that you would guide us into your joy. Father, let us taste and see that you are good. And Father, we ask that we would see Jesus before our very eyes, that you would paint him before us by your Holy Spirit, and that you would stir our hearts and our affection and our joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, what a privilege, what a privilege. We minister in a country where uh, the, the harvest is big, <laughs> the workers are extremely few, and it's a great strength and a comfort to know that there are like-minded brothers and sisters uh, in a sound church who join us and who provide support for continuity in our work. So thank you for praying and thank you for supporting. For our family, it's extremely valuable. So thank you for what you do. I, I want you to know that I'm thankful. <laughs> Am I communicating that well? <laughs> uh, and thank you for the privilege of sharing God's Word, opening God's Word with you today. Back home in our church in Sweden, I'm working through the book of Ephesians. And I do that very slowly. Uh, I think I've given 46 sermons, and last Sunday's sermon was in Ephesians 4.11. Uh, but I think I, I can speak, I think I can speak for the whole church when I say that it's been fantastic to be able to study this glorious letter slowly, take time to examine every verse and contemplate what it means for us today. Uh, and I would like to read a few verses in the third chapter of Ephesians. And I'll, at the same time, I want to give you an idea of how it comes across uh, as I expound the text for our church back home. Uh, I feel I'm very limited by the language, so please pray for me uh, that the message may flow as I speak. Uh, but oh, what sweet verses these are. Uh, we're at the end of the prayer that Paul began in verse 14. So I'll start reading at Ephesians 3.14, the Apostle Paul. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He, He the Father, may grant you, you the church, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a fantastic prayer this is by the Apostle Paul. And its climax is that we should know the love of Christ 
that surpasses knowledge, and that we, we may be filled by, the, by all the fullness of God. <laughs> we should know the love that surpasses knowledge, and we, we, we should be filled with all God's fullness, with all God's, really? Are we even allowed to say stuff like that? All God's fullness? So let's examine what, what it means to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I'd like to focus specifically on verses 18 and 19. Uh, Paul speaks about Christ's love to his church, Christ's love to us. Uh, and he uses a word that describes an enormity that is unfathomable. He names four dimensions to convey this grandeur, not three dimensions, but four dimensions. And he speaks later about them in terms of this contradiction. He says that, it's, that he prays that they together would be able to comprehend what no man can comprehend, the knowledge which surpasses knowledge. How can we understand something that surpasses knowledge? And here we have something so beautiful, so inexhaustible, that it will keep us occupied before the Father for all eternity. We will spend all eternity examining this, marveling over this. But just as important, it's a subject that we must process, that we must ponder even now. In fact, throughout history, this has been characteristic of all the spiritual giants that we love so much. They have marveled over Christ's love towards them. They couldn't get enough of delving into the greatness of Christ's love towards them. There's been nothing that's, that's given them such joy more than contemplate Christ's love towards them. And there hasn't been anything that had molded them in this life such as Christ's love. And I even dare to claim that most of our spiritual problems we have today can be traced back to our failure to understand Christ's love towards us. We get so caught up in our, all our activities and different duties and we become frustrated because we do not get what we want. Or we might go through real suffering and, and our entire inner vision might be hindered and, and, and it just consumes us, the here and the now. But if we, if we try to take a step back and look at this grandeur of Christ's love, we'll be able to read our own lives differently in light of it. So, in this message, I'll try to do just that. Paul prays that we together should know the love of Christ, and so just let's, let's look at that. And surely, you've, you've already heard everything I'm going to share with you today. But my aim, brothers and sisters, my aim is not to come up with anything new. I take great pride in being predictable. Uh, <laughs> The point is that this is the finest. This is our most prized possession. So now, as a church, let's go to this treasure chest and take this out and look at it. <laughs> and hopefully, it will do something with us. Hopefully, it will awaken our praise and, and our worship to Him who has given this precious thing. I've divided this sermon into two sections. Firstly, I want to say something about what Paul says about us being able to comprehend Christ's love together with all saints, together with all saints. And secondly, 
I want to look at the love of Christ based on the dimensions that Paul names in this text. It's breadth, it's length, it's height, and it's depth. All right, point number one. I think it's interesting that Paul emphasizes that we should comprehend this thing together with all saints. He's writing 2,000 years before modernity. You know, modernity is when we started to think as individuals. But it seems to be that just for safety's sake, he needs to be explicit that this comprehension about Christ's love is not an individual thing. It's just another of those different aspects in the Christian faith that quite simply cannot be done or be understood alone. This is because the Christian life is always meant to be lived in fellowship. If you want to understand Christ's incomprehensible love, which is absolutely central in in the Christian life, you need to do it together with your Christian brothers and sisters. It's, It's not about the individual experiences that we have. This understanding is something that happens when we look at it together as a community. And there's a clear parallel between this text in chapter 3 and the text at the end of the second chapter where Paul describes the church as a temple that is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets where Christ Jesus is its cornerstone. And Paul goes on, Ephesians 2, 21, he says, in whom Christ Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are, the dwell, are, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So let's just notice how great this is. Paul calls the church for a temple, God's temple. And this connects to the whole Old Testament history of the first tabernacle and the temple, which was laid a bit, so that God himself could dwell there. He, eternal, infinite God, would dwell in Israel's midst. God told King Solomon that he would put his name there forever. His eyes and his heart would be there forever. And we read later in 2 Chronicles that when they consecrated the temple, fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the house so that priests could not minister there anymore. Paul connects to all this and he says the church is now the temple. Now, the church is God's dwelling. God doesn't live in a house of stone and wood anymore, but in a temple built of living stones that are joined together to one another by the Holy Spirit. We see this confirmed in the book of Acts uh, when tongues of fire hovered over the church when the Spirit descended, just like the pattern of the Shekinah glory that had done when the temple was consecrated. Paul says we are being built together by the Spirit so that every church member is a a building stone that has been formed so that we, so together, we together are God's dwelling place. And this is an important lesson. We as Christians, just as building stones, we fulfill our purpose when we are being joined together with one another. A building block that just sits on the road by itself is rather useless, friends. 
but a building block that is joined together with others fulfills its purpose. And here in our text, Paul continues in this very same idea. He's still alluding to the temple. He's still in that metaphor. He describes something that is inconceivably large, perhaps a building uh, that has width and depth and height, four dimensions. At the same time, he describes the believer's interconnection within the body. It's when we are joined together that we can understand something of that which cannot be fully comprehended. It's when we are joined together that God, who cannot be contained in any building, manifests His dwelling among us. And this is perhaps an allusion to the breadth of Christ's love, which we'll talk more about in a minute. When we get to know one another with all our faults, with all our differences, it awakens within us an amazement that Christ not only loves me despite everything that I am, but He also loves my brothers and sisters. You know, imagine how the uh, Ephesians would hear this. Jews and Gentiles, they had despised one another for generations. They had called one another dogs and fools. They refused to have anything to do with one another. Uh, They refused to walk on the same side of the road. And these people, they, find, they found that suddenly this wall of separation were torn down. And they, as one new man, both Jew and Gentile, had the same access to Father. There weren't two separate groups that, w- that had the same access. They were now one new man. And that tells us something fundamental about the love of Christ. Jesus said that when his disciples love one another, then the world would believe that the Father had sent him. But I think it's also plausible to think that when Jesus' disciples love one another, they will come and see and understand more of Jesus' love towards them. Both these dimensions are connected. So when Paul prays, that when we are rooted and grounded in love, we may be able to know the incomprehensible love of Christ together with all saints. That, well, he prays that. And the precondition for being able to understand the love of Christ is being that we are being built together with one another. So that's the first point, that's the precondition. So we, we take this and we're moving on and contemplate Christ's love towards us. What is it that we see? Let's look at its breath. Breath. Do I, do I pronounce that correctly? Breath, yeah. How wide is Christ's love? Well, we've already touched on that. If we look at Ephesians chap, uh, second chapter, verse 11, and then onward, uh, we see that His love is wide enough to also include the heathen, you know, the uncircumcision they are being called, those who were far off, and it's wide enough to allow them to be brought near by the blood of Christ. These two who were bitter enemies, through Christ's love, they've become one. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and reconciled both Jew and Gentile with God and with one another. But we we also can see this in the book of Revelation, obviously, the beauty of the breath of Christ's love. Listen to what it says, Revelation 5, 9. 
Revelation 5, 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. From the United States of America, from Sweden, from India, Japan, every tribe, Laos, <laughs> every nation. And then, of course, uh, Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the vision. One day in glory, we shall see this clearly. But this glimpse in Revelation gives us already a helpful, it's already helpful for our comprehension of the breadth of Christ's love. All peoples, all tribes, all countries are represented here. That includes a great multitude that no one could count. This gives us hope to continue to share the gospel, to continue to tell the good news about Christ's love, because Christ's love isn't limited to cultural boundaries. In Christ, there are neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. God's people are among all people, even in Sweden. And even if many despise us, and even if, if many will never turn to God, there are also these people among those people that desperately needs to hear the gospel preached, and they will come to do so. So Christ's love then is wide enough to include an innumerable multitude of peoples from all lands, all languages. What then is the length of Christ's love? And the answer I humbly propose is an eternity, eternity. It's from everlasting to everlasting. Ephesians 1, 4 says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then in chapter 2, 7, Paul says that God in the coming ages might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see the scope. <laughs> in Jeremiah 31.3, Jeremiah 31.3, uh, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Do you ever contemplate that Christ has loved you from all eternity? When we look at the length of Christ's love, uh, we can be reminded that, that it's, it's, been, it's always been there, always. Sometimes we hear theologians speak of, about the covenant of redemption. I don't know if you've heard of that. What they mean when they, when they speak of that is that before the foundation of the world, before anything, before creation, before time had its beginning, the Father and the Son established a covenant between them that concerned the salvation of all those whom the Father had given the Son. 
So it was no surprise to God that mankind would fall into sin. It was all foreseen. It was known. And the Son, as a representative of the new reconciled humanity, entered a covenant with the Father that would redeem them. And during a time when I was working at this other church that I told you about, I was completely shattered inside. I was shattered by stress. I was shattered by external uh, circumstances. But someone outside our congregation, someone I didn't even know about, uh, he offered our family to stay in a mountain cabin in the middle of the winter, uh, high enough that no trees could grow there, and it had no electricity. (laughs) And we thought, hey, that sounds exciting. So we went there. We had to go by, somebody picked us, picked us up with snowmobile, and we had to go there by snowmobile. So we were out there playing in the snow all day, uh, skiing while it was still daylight. It's just a few hours a day. <laughs> so it, got, it uh, got dark very early. And in the warmth of this cabin, I read by candlelight the Puritan John Flavel, his wonderful book about Christ, when Flavel paints a picture of a conversation between the Father and the Son before the beginning of time. It is speculative, but I think it's biblical. So I, I just thought I might read this to you. You ready? The Father said, My Son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that had utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son answered, Oh, my father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in that there, be me, that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand you shall require it. I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me, be all their debt. And the father said, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son said, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it proved to be a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverished all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. There I lay in the candlelight with my shattered soul and contemplated Christ's eternal love for me. His love began before the beginning of time. That is why we can read in Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8, that our names are written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb before the creation of the universe. Christ has known me and you, if you are by faith united to him, from all eternity. 
He loved you with an everlasting love. He wrote your name in the book of life before the world was created. So if we speak about the length of Christ's love, we can see that it started in eternity, before time began. Then it reached into time. Christ entered into time. His love will never alter because the author of Hebrews wrote that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love is always the same. There's no interruption. There's no disruption. The length of his love is an unbroken line. No matter what happens, it's an unwavering constant. It's unchangeable because he is. There's a beautiful picture in the love of Christ depicted uh, in, in the, in the um, parable of the prodigal son. The youngest son had been a fool. He had despised and rejected his father's fidelity and love. And to add that, he has squandered all the wealth that he had received from his father. And despite that, despite that, his father loved him and anxiously awaited his return. That, and when he came home, his father lavished him with blessings. That is how Christ loves us patiently, faithfully, without giving up. He says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It's when we forget the love of Christ that we feel abandoned, that we feel that God has forgotten about us. Uh, when problems pile up and, and we're up against disappointments and difficulties, we can sometimes ask, where is the love of Christ in all this? And the answer is, it's always been there. It's always been there. Paul reminds us in Romans 8, 38. If you haven't got this memorized, I encourage you to do that. Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a gospel, what a message. His love is of eternity. It manifests itself in time and continues eternally from everlasting to everlasting in an unbroken line. The author of Hebrews again, he says, this makes, uh, Hebrews 7, 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in, in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lived to make intercession for them. Friends, he saves to the uttermost, to the uttermost. He saves fully and completely. He leaves nothing half done. He leaves nothing undone. Regardless of what happens, he fulfills his covenant and his love stands sure. Okay, let's look at the depth then of Christ's love. I'm reading from Philippians 2.6. Christ Jesus, though he was 
in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So look at what he did. He was in the form of God. He is God the Son at the bosom of the Father from all eternity. But Paul says he did not count equality with God as something to grasp, something to hold on for his own advantage, but he humbled himself. He laid aside these robes of eternal glory and took on upon himself the form of a servant in a world that's full of sin and shame. This is truly what, God, what Paul says. This is truly a love that is far beyond all knowledge. How is it possible? He was equal with the Father in eternity, but he was born into poverty and suffering. And he suffered. And he suffered for our sake. He was misunderstood hated, mocked, despised. He suffered hunger, thirst, exhaustion. He was arrested. He was slandered, abused, tortured, desecrated. He reeled and he stumbled under the weight of the cross on his way to Golgotha. He, he was nailed to that cross, lifted up, hanging there, and he gasped for breath. And he bore God's wrath for our sins. He drank the last drop of the cup of God's wrath, and he cried out for his father's loving presence, but his father drove him out into darkness where he at last gave up his spirit. He, the prince of life, the beginning of all good things, he died and was buried. And why did he do all this? Well, the eternal and the astounding answer is that he did it out of love for his church, his people. He did it for you and for me who are united to him. That's the depth of his love. But there's more, friends, there's more. We can see the depth in a different light when we are reminded there's there's nothing in us that justifies him to do something like that. We are all those who have gone astray. We've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. In our natural state, we are completely without hope. We read in the, fir- in the third chapter of Romans, uh, Romans 3.10, Paul says, there's none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is who we were. It was for those individuals that Christ came and endured the suffering 
of the cross without caring about the shame. He despising it, Hebrews 12, 2 says. And Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And a few verses later, Paul states that Jesus died for us while we were his enemies, his enemies. He did that for his enemies who were evil, full of rebellion, with no good in themselves, uh, which would motivate him to do that. That's the depth of his love. He forsook his exalted position and descended into these darkest realms and rose again for those who were his enemies. And this leads us to the height of God's love, Christ's love. And in displaying this dimension, Paul expresses God's ultimate purpose for us, the height to which God lifts us. We sometimes tend to think of salvation in terms of having our sins forgiven, as if Christ's love only freed us from sin uh, by satisfying God's demands. But there's so much more to it. In Christ's love, there's, there's a much higher purpose and, and merely f- than, than mere, merely freeing us from the penalty of sin. Christ not only died to abolish our sins, but to give us new life. Not just to save us from sin's punishment, but to make us God's children, God's sons and heirs in Christ Jesus himself. And besides that, he has given us the Holy Spirit who leads us into the Father's very presence. By faith in Christ, we are united to him so that all that belongs to Christ also belongs to us. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. His desire for us is that we should be with him and behold the glory he shared with the Father from all eternity. He doesn't stop with our redemption from the demands of sin. He doesn't stop with giving us forgiveness and reconciliation. He calls us his own brothers and sisters. He offers us the enjoyment of the same love with the Father uh, and the Spirit that he have enjoyed throughout eternity. Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. Anyone anyone who loves someone wants that one to share all privileges and joys. And in a similar way, Christ would have us share his glory. 
He doesn't stop until, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.27, he doesn't stop until he presents us in glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That is what he does for us. We shall be glorified to such a degree that there will be left not the slightest spot or wrinkle in us. And thereafter, we will always be with the Lord. So now, in this feeble attempt, I've, I've tried to capture a glimpse of Christ's love towards us, Christ's love for us. It's, is this something that you habitually think about and marvel over? Without a clear picture of Christ's love for you, well, the flesh and the world and the devil will gain ground in your life. And if there's someone here who's not sure whether you're truly a Christian, if you live your life as if God doesn't exist, if you're uninterested in Him, if your faith, whatever that is, might not be a living faith, or if you're even in open opposition to Him, if you denounce Him, I can, I can do nothing else but to plead with you to save yourself from the coming wrath and, and throw yourself on Him with everything that you have. Lay hold of Him. Invest your life in Him. And pray that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes so that you can enjoy Him and treasure Him as your all-sufficient Savior because certainly you need Him. And if you don't know how, well, dear friend, seek, seek a, someone at the church. Seek out an elder. They will, they will help you. But, but dear friend, you need him. You need him. Paul prayed that the knowledge of love of Christ would be something ca that characterized the church's Ephesus. And in the same way, I think we would see many blessings if we let this be our, our lifeblood. So let us help one another to see more of Christ. Let us pray for the Spirit's power to turn us away from sin and day by day give ourselves entirely to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reality that surpasses knowledge. We pray now that the Holy Spirit would continue to bring these things to our heart and transform our lives. We pray that Christ's love would amaze us and compel our lives into lives of hope and joy and wonder and humility and true worship. Father, lead us and continue to lead us into your truth. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.